I used the vulnerability and shame work in my startup in New Zealand a lot to build the innovation process. That changed people too. That changed their reactions because using innovation tools requires you to let go of that kind of judgment. And they were never going to get to the kind of creativity or the kind of satisfaction from the daily work if they were constantly protecting something, you know, shaming someone else, judging someone else. So I've seen an archetypal approach have all kinds of secondary and tertiary benefits to people's relationships, to people's understanding of themselves and how they want to move in the world. So it definitely um, can apply on way more levels than just in your brand. And for me, it's moved a lot into the culture space. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. Is your brand the provocateur? Maybe it's the activist. Or perhaps it's the muse. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, We are talking about meaning, deeper meaning, and connection, and one of my favorite topics, archetypes in branding. And before we get into this amazing episode, and I do promise that once you hear who the guest is, you'll agree that it is amazing, I'm asking you to take on the archetype of the advocate or the companion or the cheerleader, and rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Apple and Spotify use these ratings as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on their charts. And we want them to identify this show with the archetype of the podcaster, don't we? Thank you for your reviews. I do appreciate it. Today's guest is Margaret Hartwell. Margaret. Hartwell. That is such a great name. It sounds very heroin yet playful as well. And I didn't even realize that until I just said it. But that's how I kind of see today's guest. Margaret is one of my true real life heroes because she is the author of a book and toolkit that has transformed how I see the world and how I interact with clients. Her book, Archetypes and Branding, a toolkit for creatives and strategists is a must read whether you're in branding or not. Archetypes and archetypal analysis are all about stripping away the noise and getting down to the essence, the core. And that's also the aim of today's interview. In addition to being an author, Margaret Hartwell is an innovation and strategy leader on a mission to empower purpose-driven change at the intersection of design, brand, and culture, and technology. By developing people-centered solutions, she serves as a guide, mentor, and alchemist, those are all archetypes, by the way, to help senior executives and teams solve complex issues. She uses a transformative approach to everyday innovation, employs skills and best practices from a range of disciplines, 
archetypal branding, transpersonal psychology, sustainable management, and design thinking. All topics we touch on in today's episode. Her experience spans 20 plus years developing design-led businesses in the US, UK, Europe, and APAC. Industries include technology, social and environmental advocacy, health and wellness, media, entertainment, and the arts, leadership development, automotive, telecommunications, packaged goods, and travel. And she draws upon and expands on toolkits from the Design Council UK, The Grove, Society for Organizational Learning, IDEO, Stanford D School, and Jean Litka's work at the Darden School of Business, to name just a few sources of inspiration. Recognized for a breadth and depth of applied skills and experience across multiple creative disciplines and business sectors, Margaret began her career as a designer as one of the founding members of Swissa Miller Advertising, where she served in various roles from studio director to art director to vice president. In London, she was the director of development for the London Design Festival and head of marketing for the Design Council. Once she returned to the U.S., she consulted and coached with Sachi and Sachi. PayPal, Jive, Flextronics, BFG Communications, Stanford Lively Arts, Two Fish Bakery, and the San Francisco Symphony. She has teaching experience as she taught live exchange in the pioneering MBA in design strategy program at the California College of the Arts and is an engaging speaker, presenter, and facilitator. Margaret has been called an information junkie with a childlike curiosity and is known for having an insatiable appetite for travel, trends, and technologies. She's been an actor, singer, improv player, photographer, scriptwriter, environmental advocate, and founder of a line of infant sportwear called Zero Something. And she currently lives in Salem, Massachusetts. And this is her story. I am here with Margaret Hartwell, an innovation consultant and innovation coach. And, you know, that's all great. And we're going to talk about that. But I know Margaret from a book that she wrote called Archetypes and Branding. And I have it right here. And it is literally like it's, it's well loved. I've got like the corners are like kind of, you know, dinged up a little bit and uh, things are like noted and ripped in here. And I like, more than any other book, you you can see here, Margaret, like, you know, and, and people that are on the, have listened to the podcast. I'm here at the Happy House studio. I am surrounded by books and I believe that books have energy and power and I just love books. And so I, 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 I get a lot of books and this book is probably the one that I reach for more often Aww. than any other book because it's, and we're going to talk about this book, but it, it's because it has knowledge that you receive when you read it, but it's, a, it's like a working book. It's a book that like has like a purpose that I work with in my job, like on a, da- on a daily basis. Now I want to talk to you about that. So, so, so I'm extremely, extremely excited to have you on the podcast. So welcome. And as we get into this, like to me, archetypes are definitely about the universal, the, the essence, but they're also like sort of mystical and magical. They're like a portal or a window to me, you know, and a lens. And so with that kind of definition, at least, and I'm I'm sure you have your own, when you were like a young girl, were you into these types of, (laughs) of like portals and windows and translation? Like what was, 
What was young Margaret like? Oh, gosh. Well, God, thanks, Mark. I really am pleased and just that I get to chat with you on your great podcast. And that's a great opening question because one of the things as I was reviewing the kinds of influences and and trajectories and defining moments and stuff is I had imaginary friends that I was asked by the kindergarten. My mother was asked by the kindergarten teacher to have me leave them at home because it was taking too long for me to answer questions and to do things because I was doing everything in, in collaboration. So yeah, I think that was huge because my sisters are eight years older than I am and they're identical twins. And so I had to go to the magical mystery portal world to find my twin. I was like, hey, they got each other. So I I made up my own and I made three. So I outnumbered them. So, but, um, you know, I think combining that with super bad eyesight also, this is where I went into books. So for me, I love what you just said about books too. I do think they're alive and they they are portals as well. So you combine those things together and yeah, it was, it was pretty evident early on that I had a very favorite place in my imagination. Yeah. And were you a creative as a child? Did you think that you'd have a creative career? Did you want to do something else? All I wanted to do was sing. (laughs) Well, I should say, all I wanted to do was anything creative, you know, let's paint, let's work with clay, um, let's sing, let's dance, let's act, let's um, make dioramas, just anything kind of maker-ish was really, I loved it. it and But music was my wheel, you know, that was really where it all came together in terms of what it felt like as a, your body as an instrument and playing the piano and story. So, you know, every song that we would you know, sing had this huge story to it. And I think that that became like a third way of going into the mystical in a way, because music so amazing in terms of its portal. Yeah, absolutely. And so you're into music and you're creative. I mean, was this something that was supported in your household as a child? Did uh, Or did your parents want you to do something else? <laughs> Yes, it was supported in so much as that it was the childlike thing to do. And that when you grew up, you should be a doctor. So that was that was kind of what I was told is that ultimately that the arts weren't a career, they were just a hobby. And I tried to debunk that, but I did go to Berkeley and gosh, studied medicine or pre-med at the time. And it it was I don't know. It's kind of funny. I look back on it now and I kind of see the paradigm. And the the paradigm was, is that it was kind of like cheating to go and do something that you're already really good at. (laughs) You should do things that you're not so good at. And then you are a whole and complete person. So hard work meant everything in my family. I'm a third culture kid, Canadian mother and a Chinese father. You know, it doesn't you don't really see it so much, but I'm actually more Chinese than my sisters from what the ancestry 23 and me says. <laughs> we laugh about. Um, but yeah, so it, you know, it's a great, my parents were awesome, don't get me wrong. I mean, they they really supported everything that I loved and wanted to do. And they they were just like any parent. They wanted to make sure that I was going to be self-sufficient and be able to make a living. 
And they didn't see how it all was going to come together if I was just doing the arts. So um, they were very happy when I got my MBA. <laughs> Instead of, you know, I'm not going to med school. I'm leaving for London and I'm doing a Shakespeare program. And my father's like, why? And I said, well, because every doctor, you know, needs to know how to speak in iambic pentameter, right? And he just looked at me like, you've lost your mind. And my mother said, let her go. She'll get it out of her system. Yeah, no, never got it out of my system. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just love imagining you and your your sisters having uh, arguments about who's more Chinese. I can can see it now at the (laughs) the holidays. And so take me back there to Berkeley. You're in pre-med. Uh, yeah. I imagine that you've at least convinced yourself you want to be pre-med, you know, like we all do. We, we tell ourselves that, okay, this is my yeah. path. And then something's kind of welling up in you. Something is saying, maybe this isn't my path. What was that decision like to, to go to London? What, like barely passing all my science classes? Yeah. <laughs> Fear has a way of doing that too. But yeah, I think I got three A's the whole time I was there. And it was in kinesiology exercise um, physiology and psychology and photography. So um, what was welling up? I was singing all during college. I sang in the perfect fifth and then in the golden overtones. And that was really what I loved to do. And so I was seeing that I was kind of dying inside and I was getting unhappy and I was kind of isolating myself at that point. And I thought, what's going on? It was, you know, you always look back and go, what what were the first kind of crises or existential moments of awakening? And I think before going, choosing to go to London, that was mine, where I just feel like, why am I doing any of this? What, what's the point? I mean, I was, wasn't that I was super bad at it. And I was really good at, you know, intuiting people's needs and really listening to people and all that, but, but to spend the time so yeah, that was the moment of thinking, well, I let's see what this is going to be like. And quite frankly, that's really what kind of changed everything for me because I just came alive in London. And not just from the the tact um, you know, the tactics and the skills building that that the Shakespeare program gave me, but really from the interest in people and in kind of the myth and metaphor just popped. And I think if I look back, I think that was probably where the notion for an archetypal approach kind of, which I would never have been able to put the words to, but that's where it kind of took hold is I was constantly looking around corners sideways and looking for meaning. What's the, what's the deeper meaning here? How does it translate into other arenas or cultures or to different people. So, and, you know, Shakespeare is an amazing um, primer for that kind of symbology and metaphor. So um, yeah, that's where it kind of took hold. Uh, And and so the question I always disliked uh, when I was going through school, because I never really knew what I wanted to do was people would always ask me, they'd always say, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. What are you going to do with that? And so I, as much as I dislike that question, I mean, were people asking you that about the Shakespeare program? What are you going to do with that? So you're going to oh, totally. going to London and you have Shakespeare, but what after Margaret, what are you going to do? Oh, totally. Well, yeah. So I was told to come home to finish my degree at Berkeley because three years at Berkeley didn't mean anything. So 
my parents said, wait, if you want to go back, you can go back. Because what I really wanted to do was go to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. Because musical theater then had become my thing. So what did I really want? You know, what were you going to do with that? Well, I was just going to keep studying. (laughs) I love learning. I love being in school. I love, you know, playing, essentially. And that's what this program was. But came back and finished my degree. And my parents said, well, what are you going to do with that? And I was like, well, I'm going to move to L.A., and I'm going to try my hand at acting. And they're just like shaking their heads completely. But at that point, being an, an actor without a lot of credits, you either become an aerobics instructor or a waiter. And so I started teaching aerobics. And then I found my way into a theater company. And at that point, I met somebody who was working on a commercial shoot. And she introduced me to my then former future boss in advertising. So it was a complete like pinball of, I had no idea what I was going to do with that. And I said, I have no idea, but you know what? I'm again, I think I've always had a certain level of faith (laughs) that whatever happened, you know, I came from a great background and my family always had my back and I could pretty much do whatever I wanted. Anything was possible. So I went with it and my parents were thrilled that I got into advertising, you know, finally something that sounded like a job. <laughs> so <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. What was that first advertising job like What you were in LA and who, who were you working for and, and what was your responsibilities? So I joined Suisa, uh, the Suisa group, when we had 13 people. Um, and I left after we had gotten the Acura account in Suisa Miller, and we'd been sold to IPG. So the trajectory of this tiny little agency, I mean, and when we got Acura, the, the headline said, you know, there's a snowball's chance in hell that this agency is going to get this. But I was the designer on that pitch. So that's kind of where I... I was able then at that point to kind of parse out all my responsibilities because in a smaller agency, I was running the studio. I was doing my own, you know, um, art direction for clients. I was also doing all the IT, which is the joke of the, (laughs) of everything, but nobody else had the confidence to do it. So I was like, okay, I'll learn this and, and do that. So yeah, the, so I was able, what was it like? It was, it was like a total roller coaster and really fun. I mean, LA advertising in your, you know, your twenties and early thirties is super fun. People are unencumbered and yeah. And it was a good support. It was a, it was a nice family and I was able to have my daughter during that time. So and as a single mom, that was a huge support network. So I learned a ton And I think that's really where I learned about brand strategy and marketing is from the creative side of advertising. Yeah. At what moment in that advertising journey did you think to yourself, oh, wait, like I might be in advertising. Like I might make a career out of this. This might be like what the future holds for me. Yeah. I, I, what moment was that? I think it was truly winning the Acura account because up until that point, I had just been kind of like a Swiss army knife in terms of being a, a art, art director, designer, creative director, all around whatever you need. And at that point I thought, huh, maybe I really do have a knack for this, for understanding people's needs and wants and finding a way to connect with them 
so that there was some exchange that was mutually beneficial. And so that, and there were a couple of great strategists at the agency too. And um, though ultimately they were a huge um, influence. And uh, so that when I left my agency, actually, I got to be honest, I got laid off because it was at a really difficult time in, for the agency. And, and so I got laid off and I thought, huh, what do we do when we're at our lowest moments, all change moments? We go back to London. So that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> and when was your first interaction with archetypes? Like when did you, those even become on your radar and something that you're like, ah, oh, this is interesting. Right. It was actually in my coaching program that I took at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology in Palo Alto. And we, it was Goddesses in Every Woman, the Jean Shinoda Bowling book. She also wrote Gods in Every Man. And reading that brought all of, you know, Edith Hamilton's mythology back because I'd studied that in high school, but never really never took hold. And Joseph Campbell. And I'd been on the path with James Hillman and you know, and other kinds of, you know, I guess the, you know, the soul's code was a huge impact for me, but that's when I first found it. And then I found Carolyn Mace's work. Do you, have you been across her no, stuff? I, okay. No, I don't, I don't know her. So stuff. the book, so she's a uh, medical intuitive and she wrote a book called Sacred Contracts that has outlines or descriptions of a lot of archetypes. And she uses archetypes as a way of doing just like we would in branding as a shorthand for understanding people's drives and journeys and motivations. And that, and I, so I found that book and I thought, huh, this is pretty cool. I, I don't know what, to, and I looked more into it and she actually had a deck of cards. So I guess she's back up that at the time I was doing brand strategy work as a consultant, just kind of for hire. and. So when I found these cards that Carolyn Mace had done, I thought I went to um, the guy that I was working with, who was actually my co-author, Josh Chen. And I said, you know, can I trial working with the right kind of client with these cards? And let's, let's see if the brand strategy process goes differently or let's just experiment with it. And the feedback that we got was that the, the cards were way too woo-woo. And it just, it made them feel like, you know, somebody was trying to read their tarot or something <laughs> and that it, that it wasn't validated and it wasn't real at that point. So, so yeah, so Josh and I, you know, thought, well, maybe this is an opportunity. And he had had an agreement with his publisher for a previous books that they had, the agency had published. And um, they had been kind of after him saying, well, what's next? So Josh came to me and said, you want to write a book about archetypes and branding? And I went, sure. Okay. Because <laughs> it was working. You know, the, the process, the dialogue, the kind of different conversations that we were having were actually unlocking areas that were resistances in a business. That by using in this archetypal kind of world, Somehow it gave them a 30,000 foot view and they, it softened some of the ego identity attachments that people had about what their brand was supposed to be or how they were going to do things. So, yeah, 
That's a long-winded answer to your, <laughs> how did you first find archetypes? <laughs> no, it's amazing. I wanted to know. And it's funny that you say woo-woo. So, you know, as I mentioned, I love them and I'm a little like, you know, I'm a little just like neurotic and like the little perforations on the cards bother me a little bit. So I, I bought some of your cards, like the clean uh-huh. version, like back when you could get them real easily. And yeah. then I had someone at Etsy make me a special leather <gasps> case because Neat. when I bring them out, that's like, I'm like, this is, this is something, this is magic a little bit, Aww. you know, and we're going to, we're going to go through the, and I agree. There's just something that, um, y- y- the conversation, cause I don't think most clients, especially when you want to involve like the leadership team, have the words, like they don't yeah. have the words. To, and, and so the conversation that comes out, out of these is so amazing, but Look, someone, another team had already written kind of what was considered the book on <laughs> archetypes, you know, and uh, Carol S. Pearson and, and, and Margaret Mark, and and they 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 wrote and they wrote about twelve of them. So, like, why not? Like, why is that not just enough? Like, why did you create this amazing book with six? Because now it seems so easy and obvious to me, but like, it right. also must have seemed really <laughs> daunting, you know? Like, like, oh. why did you think that there was a market for this? Well, first off. I mean, the hero and the outlaw. Wow. You know, this is all this work is standing on their shoulders. Totally. I give them massive props. They were at the forefront of of bringing this, of course, into the business and branding world. And so it just wasn't nuanced enough for me. I, from, I started out, you know, looking at things and they, they felt like they were bordering on stereotype or, like so many words that kind of find their way into their vernacular that they end up losing their meaning, losing their unique essence and stuff. And I think that's true as culture evolves is that, you know, words go in and out of having meanings. So I didn't see anything wrong with trying to, you know, nuance something a little bit, you know, nuance the magician to an alchemist, you know, why, why wouldn't you do that? And so I guess, I mean, that, that's probably another theme. You know, people ask me, why did you do this? And I think, or why did I do anything like in my life? And pretty much my answer is, well, why not um, do it? So yeah, it was a little daunting. And I'm the first to say that, you know, with, you know, with writing any book that gets published, like I go back and I shake my head like, no, I should have put that there. Should have put that there. That, you know, like there's always improve room for improvement. So yeah, just, I've got a list on my computer of the next kind of set to flesh out with people. And I'm looking for a way to, to maybe do that in a collaborative sense. So, you know, like somebody came to me and said, will you work with me? I was a brand practitioner. Will you work with me to, find this a unique expression of an archetype for this client. And we did, and we completely fleshed out the connoisseur. And it was super fun and super cool to work together like that. But I love your the cover. And that makes me, you, you just can't know how much it means to know that something that I poured my heart and soul into has meaning for people. It's It's really, it's really lovely. And I love that you've got the little cover for it and everything. So. Well, yeah, no, it mean, means a lot to me. And it's meant a lot to people I've worked with and clients. And did you do the artwork on these cards? Is that these your design? Mm, creative, creative director, creative director with, with Josh, he and I both, but we had an amazing team of designers. So the breadth of designers, you know, of course you see different styles all throughout there, but 
we also so we're kind of it was kind of our um our backstop if you will like if this wasn't going to work we thought well at least we'll have something that we could say well i don't like green or you know like i like that style of design it, it, that clients could say so we were backing ourselves up with some some other layer of of meaning or usefulness in the yeah. design world for that hence the different designs so. yeah and i find archetypes so interesting i've often just thought about like completely running an entire agency process around you know top to bottom like just being mm -hmm. like like archetypes i haven't gotten there yet but when you work with clients what's kind of your go-to way of using archetypes how do you like to start with the cards and, and the conversation and, and what are you ultimately hoping they're gonna they're gonna land on or discover right so i'm rarely hired to do the one thing to do just the archetype work it's it's odd how the first they'll come because they want to do archetypal work and then we have the initial conversation and it always kind of fleshes out into something that's more what you would just call a big brand strategy um, like the work that you do so the archetypes are i see them as part of the gestalt of your brand strategy in a sense that you can't ask them to do all the heavy lifting and also, I think that they're evolving. So as, as stakeholders change and their relationships with the brand change, then they have to, they have, to have a certain um, developmental path to them as well. So I usually include a, a developmental path for an archetypal approach. But to your question about how do I, how do I usually start, it's kind of a classic design thinking process where I do a um, kind of a discovery phase to understand where there may be gaps or um, potential alignments to be found. And then we go into really exploring what has been done before, because I don't want people thinking that, you know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. What, what can we use moving forward? And, and then they usually just, it's a codification of truly what value they're providing, what values they have, what is their mission, you know, and getting them to distill that. And at that point, I do it pretty much the same way that, that I said I do it in the book, which is that you, you just sort with a facilitated question process. And I think that's probably, if I will, you know, say the secret sauce is because you, you can't just do this digitally and go, oh, I've got my archetype now. There's a deep reflection as you've, <laughs> I don't even tell you because you're doing it all the time too. It's like, it, it reflects back something that, um, that resonates. Like you're almost, you can feel it in the room when, it, when it's happening. Um, there's that term entrainment, which is that musical term where um, a frequency will start to create another frequency at the same resonant vibration. That's what I feel when it, we're starting to get close in the sorting process and in the questioning process. And then before we actually um, uh, decide, it's not really the right word because we've been revealing things all along, but before we say commit, choose and commit to a process, of including archetypes throughout the value chain, we actually dig into the value chain and see whether or not this, this archetypal um, expression can come to life 
in all the different areas of the business, in the operations, in the, you know, in the processes, in the systems, in marketing and sales, how can it become a um, organizing principle for both the brand and the culture? So those are the kind of questions I ask, and it's really more about chunking them down into um, modules that I do in the different workshops. And I use a lot of other exercises to, um, to elicit this, the kind of um, resonance that you will. And a lot of them are design thinking exercises. I like to really see how um, an arc, we, we put it to the test before we choose and commit. So what would this, how would this affect the customer journey, right? Does, does this affect your value proposition? How does this align with, you know, the strategic path for the business? Because that might shift things as well. Like, are they on an M&A track? Because at that point, we're actually dressing up something differently than we would if we were a startup. So those overlays, the developmental overlays of the business come into factor as well. Do you find it hard to sort of back up or, or back out if you've chosen a archetype and you've gone through this prototyping, if you will, and you're like, uh, that's not working? Does then everyone just kind of says, yeah, like it's not working? Pretty much. At that point, I don't know. You know what? I'm curious to see what your experience with the process is. But for me, the process of this kind of introspection and alignment of everything changes the way that people hold on to right and wrong. They, there's, they're not as much about finding a solution as, a, as opposed to finding a, a process that continues to reveal value. And it's not so solution-based. Um, so it's not just one and done. You know, everybody understands that this, we're going, this is some, actually something that is going to grow along and with and inside and outside of us. We've actually changed the game. And it, you know, it's not for everybody. Some people really want just a solution. And it's pretty amazing to watch them fight you and you just go, okay, well, this isn't the right time. I'm not the right one for you. So, but that's okay. <laughs> I love it. And, you know, I think about, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the challenges I have with clients is they are so like solution oriented, even when it comes down to working with archetypes. And like, so they're like, so like, okay, like, what are we doing here? Like, what are we trying to get to? And, right. and, you know, so I've, I have put some parameters around it. Um, you know, I'll say things like, oh, well, we want to find your archetype that makes you why, like that that the resonates with your why, or the archetype mm-hmm. that makes you unique in your space. But that's just kind of the way I've done it because I feel like you have to put these like these parameters so, so the client can understand what we're trying to get. Otherwise, it's harder mm-hmm. for them. It's a little too little too woo woo, you know. And I uh, totally agree. And I'm definitely you kind of have I like, to calm I like them down. You have to kind of calm down the cognitive dissonance, if you will. And usually I've done a whole pre-education about the value of archetypes and how they, you know, increase your economic value, you know, what a brand-led valuation looks like and, and how it actually translate into an intangible asset for your MA, if that's what you're doing. And then also just, you know, really looking at educating them 
in a way that gets them on the same page. So that they they let go a little bit. It kind of shakes them loose. So um, and then you can do those things without that. The other piece that I I think that's been really important lately for me is Brene Brown's work. You know, founded seemingly you know a long time ago, but I used the vulnerability and shame work in my startup in New Zealand a lot to build the innovation process. And that changed people too. That changed their reactions because using innovation tools requires you to let go of that kind of judgment. And they were never going to get to the kind of creativity or the kind of satisfaction from the daily work if they were constantly protecting something you know, shaming someone else, judging someone else. So I've seen an archetypal approach have all kinds of, you know, secondary and um, tertiary benefits to people's relationships, to people's understanding of themselves and how they want to move in the world. So it, it definitely um, it can apply on way more levels than just in your brand. And for me, it's moved a lot into the culture space. A common question I get all the time is, Mark, can you help me with our brand? Yes, we help companies solve branding problems. And the first step would be to schedule a no-obligation brand clarity call. We'll link to that in the show notes or head over to wildstory.com and send us an email. We'll get you booked right away. So whether you're just getting started with a new business or whether you've done some work and need a refresh, or whether you're a brand that's high-performing and wants to stay there, we can help. After you book your brand clarity call, you'll learn about our brand audit and strategy process. We'll identify if you need a new logo or just a refresh. We'll determine if your business has a branding problem, and you'll see examples of our work and get relevant case studies. We'll also see if branding is holding your business back and can help you get to the next level. So what are you waiting for? Build the brand you've always dreamed of. Again, we'll link to that in the show notes or head over to wildstory.com and send us an email. Now back to the show. So my friend Asha, she's a brand strategist. She knew I was talking to you and she mm-hmm. wanted me to ask you a question. She, she wants to know why some brand strategists like us use archetypes and why some don't like what's your you know what, what's your thought on that like like sort of and what perhaps i think to uh broaden the scope of the question what might those other brand strategists be be missing uh by not mm. employing archetypes in their work oh gosh well why do some use them and some not well i think there are a lot of people, regardless of what they do, let's just be in brand strategy, that think that there's a way, a way, or the way. And that if you just do the way, then you'll just get what you want. There's like this linear A to, you know, Z kind of thing that you get. And they like, they have a certain um, commitment to that kind of process. They give some confidence. They can replicate it. There's it's it's something that they have identified with and studied with, but 
gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm stopping myself, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. You know, it's, it's, there was this guy who put archetypes in branding as he put it on his bullshit meter. And he said it was the sixth biggest marketing bullshit thing that ever was. And I just burst out laughing. I And I, I thought it was great because I was like, we were right after Seth Godin's work. And I was like, yay, we made it right after Seth. But I think that the, the gig is up for people in, in any form of consulting or business or helping or creativity, maybe even anyone, that you can't bring your whole self to things anymore. And I think that archetypes, you have to do that now, is what I mean to say. I probably got my negatives caught up there. But um, an archetypal approach, I think, just opens a door to a deeper level of connection with yourself, with your society, with any, any relationship. And I think understanding that branding now is is about is no longer push and telling its relatedness and we and I mean I'm not saying anything that you or all of your listeners are, are already across but it's it's an orienting principle to understand that a brand branding is really about increasing the value of a relationship so much in the way that you would increase the value of relationship with your family or a friend or your community so why do they not use them? I think they're scared of them because they don't know how to um, flesh them out into a 360 degree living embodied way of being. And I will admit, I probably have a, a leg up here because I studied acting. I mean, you, I know how to step into a character and kind of feel what that is, right? You know, I've done a ton of improv. So you know, just the idea of sparking new thing of new ideas off of other people and being able to play in that space. I've studied a ton of psychology, so I understand motivation and behavior and how to move people in that sense. And I've also been in the art world and the sustainability world where you you understand that everything is connected on some level and it's just, it, we're working in a system. So I, to answer your question in the most long-winded way is that I think that people don't use them because they don't really grok the depth of them and that that they're part of a system. So they still see it as a separate, you know, branding is still something separate. I think it's like the thread that is who we are and who a company is. So that's why I think people who are naturally curious and always continuously learning are the most successful brand practitioners out there for an archetypal strategy or for even if they don't use archetypes because they're just they're just curious about life and curious about people and they look at the cross sections which is what i think archetypes do absolutely and that was a great answer not long-winded and <laughs> you, you touched on this but i just want to clarify when when, when you're using archetypes and the archetypal analysis, are you starting off that way and using it as a centering device or are you doing it later? Like a lot of times um, I'll do it later in the process, especially like when we're uh, in a more typical brand strategy process, like personality, voice and tone. That's where, you know, it comes up a lot for me. But as I heard you speaking, it sounds like it could 
be very useful maybe in the beginning of the process, especially when you're talking about like purpose and why and why do mm-hmm. we exist? Is that, how do you approach that? Well, I've been criticized for always approaching everything uniquely, which is why I probably work harder than I have to, um, <laughs> cause everything seems like it's some bespoke thing. Again, I, I have to say, I think I just feel my way. I wish I could say that there was a, a process, but you can, from the discovery, half an hour with, with a company in a discovery session about what it is they're saying they want, what it is that they're doing, and asking them where they want to be reveals something that tells me then where this needs to happen. And I'm, I've done it at the very beginning just to kind of ground them into the notion of talking about what's going on in a story fashion with people that have specific drivers and motivations and and universal stories to them. I've done it in the middle and I've done it with, with each one of the little teams too. So that was an interesting one. Instead of doing it with the C-suite, I went in and did the exercise with each one of the kind of teams, marketing and sales ops, HR, and even finance. So I did one with each one of those. And then I asked one person out of each one of those to come with me. And then we did it with the C-suite bigger. And those people were were so, they were, of course, really engaged at that point and loving the process, but they were the greatest kind of um, contagion excitement for the process that the C-suite had to give up their oh, boo-hoo on it all. And, and they were fed by the people that worked really were on the front lines. I don't like to use those metaphors, but you know, the, in the trenches with, with the company's purpose and not just directing it. So I've used them at every different phase. It's, it's crazy, but it's really satisfying to walk back into um, a client's office and see you know, an image of the card or somebody has it on their T-shirt or somebody's using it in a mug or, or, um, or they're actually sitting there because we do some, some grounding work, I guess you could say, for creativity purposes to you know, get you in a place where you can hear your own creative muse. And so they have a little technique that I teach them. So in watching them do it, it's pretty cool. It comes from Eric Maisel, who's a renowned kind of artistic and creativity coach. And it's, you know, it's a breathing process, but it, it puts people quickly into a space of being able to kind of channel the archetype, the story of that archetype. So, so yeah, it's, it's everywhere. At the beginning, I think it was more that we used it right we used it more in a kind of more traditional sense that it came, it came after usually after the collage. I used to do a lot of collaging with people to try and get them to, to elicit um, what was going on visually for them. And also to hear how they would tell a story because I would have them collage on a certain theme. And then they would have to tell the story back to the group um, while listening to music, telling me then which music actually worked for them too. So it was, it was a little bit more of a, predictable process at that time but then I've seen it just it seems to work everywhere now so (laughs) lots of applications so many and that's and that's what's so great about um, archetypes and archetypal analysis what's it like 
being the archetypes and branding person, being the expert, like what's hard about it? Like what, I mean, I imagine that a lot of people come to you for different things. Uh, you get a lot of probably comments and criticism, like, uh, mm -hmm. the, like the, like the person that said you were the six most, uh, bullshit, uh, marketing trend or whatever. Like, yes, like exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's, what's hard about it? Like, like being, having put this work into the world and so many people resonating with it and using it, which is great. But like, what, what, what don't we see, uh, about that? I guess based on who I am and, um, you know, which is a, an overlay all unto itself to the work. I guess what's hard is that sometimes it does make me want to hide, like I'm going to disappoint people or that I won't be able to find it with them or, you know, sometimes getting too egoic about it and find it for them, you know, that somehow I will let them down. And I think that's been the gift and the challenge of having this work kind of fall into my lap where the threads of my all of my education and training and everything kind of came together is that the task now is again to just recognize that whatever is going to be is needs to be and to trust that we will get there together and so to not get too attached I think that's what's hard is that it's like having a baby in a way it's like hey don't criticize my baby you know, <laughs> but big deal, whatever it, you know, good days and bad days too. There's, there's definitely people that like to criticize. And all I think back to is the, the way that Brene Brown has brought the, the quote about being, you know, kudos to the man in the arena. And it's like, Hey, I'm in the arena at least, <laughs> you know, I may be bloody, but I'm, I'm in there, you know, wanting sincerely to help and to, to guide in a way business to be the powerful force for change that I know it is and I know it can be. So that's my whole driver of why I'm in it. So I just have to keep reminding myself that's what's hard is you, you, you forget sometimes in the midst of it all that this is, you have to return to your why, like you said earlier, you know, always. So I imagine this is a lot like, picking your favorite child. Um, but everyone, you know, and, and, you know, I tell people, you know, I have three, I have three kids and I tell people, I don't have a favorite overall child, but I always do have a favorite at any given moment. And so, yes, you know, do you have a favorite archetype, uh, at this moment or what, what right now would you say is your, your favorite archetype and why? Well, um, so I'll answer it from two different places. One from a play place and one from a meaning place. Not that the two are, are not together, but what's happening in the world right now from a social justice perspective is soul destroying to me. And to me, then I, I really, if we can awaken the strength of, of the activist in, in people that think that it doesn't touch them, but it is, it's shifting them. It's. I love the power of the activist. I love the confidence and the the, the givingness of it. You know, the, the the infusion of doing what's really right for humanity. So that one's high on my my favorites list right now. I think from the play position, 
I, I cannot lie. <laughs> you like big stories. I cannot lie. I like the provocateur. I cannot lie. I mean, just, it's anything that wakes people up is totally my favorite thing. So all what's your favorite, ways. what's your favorite provocateur brand right now? Ooh. Or, or it doesn't have to be favorite. I, I, that, that's such a tough question, but like, what's like, just what's one that's on your mind and that represents that archetype? Well, well, so this is where I think that what I'm going to name is, is actually a company where I think that the provocateur is either a secondary or tertiary, but the insurance company lemonade has they're they're disrupting and provoking a different mindset around the insurance in, industry. Are you, are you across their work? Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with Lemonade. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, I just think it's amazing what they've done with, you know, machine learning to get claims processed quickly and that, and that it's actually in the benefit for the collaborative in a way. So I think that that's part of, they've provoked people to say, I don't need to accept this. So I think I think there's probably a big provocateur in that company right now, but I I wouldn't say that they're a provocateur brand. I really think they're a citizen brand, um, citizen jester actually, because I just think they're fun, you know, funny. But, yeah, talk a little bit about that really quick. I mean, you mentioned primary, secondary, tertiary. Like, how do you organize that and, and use that as overlapping lenses um, when when you're talking about archetypes? Yeah. Um, I do, again, I know I said this in the book, but I do kind of think of it as you're wearing different clothes. You're still the same person, but when you go hiking, you're not going to wear a black tie, you know? And so this, the primary and secondary and tertiary show up, um, like you just said, as lenses, or I like to think of them as facets of, you know, like a, like looking in a kaleidoscope. If you, if you change the, um, the orientation just a little bit, you get a completely different color picture and all that. It's still the same kaleidoscope and it still has all the same parts. You're just choosing to put one part of it forward with the intent of not being what kind of sycophant would you like me to be, but with the intent of actually connecting. So what part of me is going to connect the most? What authentic part of me? So if that's my tertiary or, you know, like fine. If that's the tertiary archetype, that's fine. Um, for, I'm just thinking of a, a way that this was kind of quantified is that we had metrics. We established um, metrics for kind of how much of certain pieces of communication would be in the primary, secondary, and tertiary. So we tried to keep a balance. We, we graded basically how the writing was netting out in terms of the stories so that we understood that we weren't over indexing on one or another. And that if we did find ourselves shifting around or being uncomfortable with it, it was time to refresh. Love it. I love it. And so, uh, you know, I started off the show introducing you as an innovation consultant and innovation coach. What is that? Like, like what, what is like, what does that mean? And how's that show up for you? Cause that's where you're focusing your time right now. I think I basically am, I'm a change person. I just am a change agent. And that's usually what I get hired to do is to do some kind of change with people, whether it's on a one-to-one -one basis or in a, a 
company basis or a family basis, because I, I also do just coaching with people as well, executive coaching. So, you know, I have attorneys and CEOs that are looking for a different way of showing up and recognizing much like you said earlier in the in our chat is that you you kind of know something is going on inside of you and an archetypal lens can help with that and other kinds of connection as well so innovation is just a i think for me a fancy word for creative change so i like to say that i instill creative courage in people I, and that's what i do uh, and help to do yeah why is it hard for people your clients to have creative courage you know it's not easy no well we've been fed a pretty steady stream of fear you know steady diet of fear recently a lot um and i think that the the macro world is also making us feel very you know insecure and and changing and so it's it's hard to have the courage because we've been taught that we can't fail and that's not real you know it's like like good relationships don't have conflict no way you know it's like yeah and if you're a successful person you don't fail sorry the human beings you know the more we can just say yes awesome that just came up let's go there I think that I'm just keep looking at your hat mark and I think that's really where everybody's unique brilliance is is recognizing that all those things are baseline all those things are to be embraced and if you if you just let them out of the right wrong box then they're all actually just gifts and tools to be applied to however you want to live and be and do and so we're in the midst of a pandem- pandemic, mm-hmm. we're, ho- we're hopefully winding down, but how have you been dealing with archetypes? Because I talked a lot about, you know, my box, my cards, and it's so magical yeah. to be in a room. So how have you translated this into a tool that people can use virtually? Well, I think I've mentioned to you that my favorite tool is Miro. I'll give them a shameless plug. I don't own any stock or anything, but to me, that has shit changed everything the ability to collaborate in a virtual space on a whiteboard in that way with post-its. I mean, it, it, I can run innovation workshops in the same way that I did, you know, physically. It is what I had to get used to was using a couple of different monitors to make sure that I could still really catch into people's um, reactions and, and their engagement. And so how has it changed the way I facilitate? Well, I, I'm much more cognizant of getting people to, to play specific roles for me. I don't, because I'm needing to watch in a way where I can't sense it as much. Um, I, have a, I always have a timekeeper with me that's only doing that. Somebody who's looking at my timed agenda, you know, saying, hey, we only got five more minutes for this one. What do we want to move? And also great note takers because... I can't do all those things virtually. I can actually take notes um, when I'm there physically and going around because somehow that works out because it's kind of part of the making of it all, but I can't seem to do that in a virtual space. So having good note takers and people who are actually listening and putting inputting the stuff into the boards has been 
um, important. I found that Miro was an easy way for people to sort as well, because they just, I just put up all of the archetypes and then they would just pull into piles and then we'd sort again. So that's what it is. I think I've worked only with Miro and Zoom. So, and now yeah. they have an integration. Thank you, Zapier. So. <laughs> yeah, I like Miro too. I, uh, Miro, if you're listening, I don't like your pricing model. We have to talk about that, oh, but we're not going to yeah. use, we're not going to use time. It, t- it takes a lot of manage, <laughs> a lot of management on my time. I'm like, I don't need to be managing like seats and things. But, um, what I also wanted you to mention, you kind of alluded to it, but I just want everyone to know that, uh, Margaret has also digitized all the cards. And so you can go, yeah. uh, to her website. We'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, you can grab uh, a licensed version of those cards and then bring them into Miro so that you can play around with them, which I think is amazing, you know? And I think it really, look, is it as good? No. Uh, But is it the next best thing? Absolutely. And I think it's really uh, made things uh, amazing. So I just want people to be aware of that. If people are looking to get into archetypal analysis, like how would you suggest they get started? I mean, you know, I'm assuming get your book and then what? Well, I I would like to get them sooner than that in so much as, Gosh, be curious, be hungry, you know, be a hedonist at the smorgasbord of life and just study and look and observe and witness anything that you can. And then once you've identified that this is really a path for you in terms of of brand, don't stop learning about yourself and learning about myth and story and narrative. You know, that to me, I think is deepening your your resonance with the impact that different uh, messages have is one of the best ways to hone your skill at unearthing and revealing a true archetypal brand rallying cry, if you will. So yeah, that's what I would say. And then, yes, of course, you know, read Margaret Mark, read Carolyn Mace, Read Joseph Campbell, you know, just read, 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 read and watch. I think films are one of the greatest ways of learning about, you know, what is alive in a culture? What are the influences? So I guess it's really more just about being really hungry and for knowledge and for input stimulus and looking for the intersections and then making sure that they also somehow come together for a positive meaning and that you take responsibility for the impact that you create. So is that the way I would say to get in, how to get into this business? You know, follow your nose, you'll be led. Uh, and, and if you're listening, I'll just say, uh, Margaret's being humble. Her book synthesizes everything. Like I'll, I'll admit something right here on the show. I have tried to read Joseph Campbell's work like a hundred times. I get through like maybe 30% each time at best. I want to tell everybody that I'm a Joseph Campbell person. It's pretty, it's pretty rough. So if you want to go through the, you know, some of that academia, be my guest, but if you want to have something that's quick and actionable and uh, synthesizes it with some beautiful uh, artwork, as well as great words, I highly, highly recommend the book. Margaret. Thanks, Mark. What's, you know, and by the way, I keep seeing your name, Margaret Hartwell on Zoom. I'm like, what a cool name, like Margaret oh. Hartwell. Like, it sounds like, <laughs> like, like maybe you work like at the newspaper on a comic book or something like Margaret oh. Hartwell. I just oh, love yes. it. But uh, what's next for Margaret Hartwell? What, what are you most mm-hmm. looking forward to? Well, I'm looking forward to getting back with people. Gosh, I missed, I mean, I'm kind of an introvert. 
I am an introvert and I didn't realize how much I really wanted to be around people. So what's next is really enjoying being able to just connect with people in all areas of work and play and community and everything. I think your question was probably more in terms of what am I going to do next or where is my work taking me? Am I right? It's one way to take it. Absolutely. Well, so strangely enough, I've gotten to travel the world with work and I've just loved being able to do it. And I really, you know, traveling's hard, you know, three, four trips to China, New Zealand, Australia, it gets really hard and I, I'm getting a little tired of it. So my partner and I actually bought a, a huge Victorian in Salem and we've been renovating it. So now the hope is that we bring kind of the world to us here. So that's one component of it because it's amazing how many people that have booked into our Airbnb have actually read the book. It's wild. They Do go, we have oh archetype God, themed rooms the archetype or anything? Lady. Well, I guess Salem's kind of all archetypes, right? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of just in the background for fun, but uh, it's really, I'm, I'm really keen to move into more of a, um, a coaching and teaching place at this point. I'd like to keep on, you know, maybe two, three, four clients, but teaching's really amazing. I taught at the California College of the Arts, and it was one of in the design MBA program, and I loved it. And so I think the future is going to hold more teaching. I'm building out an online course right now. Again, one came out when the book was first published, but it, it was less than what I'd be proud of. So I'm doing that, building that out. Um, and uh, and we'll see how the coaching goes, really working with individuals, practitioners who want another um, sounding board or another input for bigger clients that they're doing this work with. And we'll make sure to link to all your, your contact info in the show notes if anyone's interested in continuing yeah. that work with you. Yeah. yeah, I will say, Mark, if people want to, you know, if they want to follow me on Instagram and then send me a message, um, just put the BGTS or what is that? Baby B- got backstory. BGBS. Yes. Yeah, there it is. What is it again, Mark? BGBS. Yeah. Or no, no, wait. Put the yeah, yeah. BGBS. Baby got yeah. backstory. Yes, there it is. Put that in your message and I'll send you an email to give you a discount on the um the course when it comes out. So that's fantastic. We'll that thank, too. thank you for that. I'm sure there's gonna be sure. a lot of people who are interested. Margaret, as we come to a close here and we're running out of time. I want you to think I back. I want you to think back to that that little Margaret version of yourself that was singing and dancing and, you know, didn't have a care in the world. And what do you think she'd say if she saw you today? Uh, she'd probably say, see, I told you so. And that she, she had such faith that being a hybrid divergent was okay. And that she just lived it and all that. And I've spent a lot of time trying to get back to that place. So the arch- an archetypal perspective, the book, all of it came together. And that would be her closing shot, I think. It's like, see, I told you so. I told you it'd be okay. <laughs> You'd get it all. All the creativity, all the fun people, all the arts, you know, all the meaning. It's all there. And that is Margaret Hartwell, author of Archetypes in Branding. 
go buy the book. We'll link to it in the show notes. And look, I get nothing from your purchase. I have no vested interest or incentive in you buying this book other than I want you to open up your aperture, broaden your possibilities, and think a little more human. One thing we touched on but didn't really explain is that the book explains all this awesome archetype stuff, but there are also 60 cards in the back that punch out so you can get a full deck of cards too. You can apply this in your branding work, professional life, writing, personal life. There really are so many applications. Go to Amazon and get the book right now. One nugget that stood out to me was when Margaret said, Brand is about increasing the value of a relationship. And at the end of the day, that's it. Now, how we get there isn't always simple or easy, just like real relationships. But I think what matters is that we show up, we keep working at it because we want to, because we care. And over time, the value of that relationship increases even when we make mistakes, put our foot in our mouth, or have a bad day. Brands are no different. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. It was such a treat to talk with Margaret, hear her perspective, and learn about what she's doing next. I'm not joking when I say Margaret is a hero to me, and I hope you got as much from this episode as I did. A big thank you to Margaret Hartwell. I want to be your BFF. Let me know if I can send you one half of a branding BFF locket and we can make it official. We will link to all things Margaret Hartwell in the show notes, her book, her website, her course, well, all things. And if you know of a guest who should appear on our show, please drop me a line at podcast at wildstory.com. Our best guests, like Margaret, come from referrals from past guests and our listeners. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. 